We're on the brink of the real EU exit with just weeks to go, but so little resolved. What can you do now to ready your workforce for post-Brexit Britain? Hello, I'm Nigel Cassidy and this is the CIPD podcast. We may have officially left Europe, but the most important messy details have still to be sorted out. Trade friction, immigration and recruitment headaches loom, and that's whether or not there's a deal in time. Until now, the coronavirus pandemic has overridden everything, and this has left organisations unprepared. Come 2021, in just three months' time, how will you plug sudden skill shortages or go about hiring migrant labour? Will your EU workforce here still be legal? And now we're all homeworking. Are there loopholes? What's to stop you sidestepping Brexit and just employing European workers online from their homes? With me, Marina Fernandez-Reyno. She's a senior researcher at the Migration Observatory, a quantitative sociologist specialising in labour market discrimination. Hello to you. Hi, nice to meet you. From our home team, the CIPD Senior Labour Market Advisor, he leads and comments on many topics, including migration, the labour market and the EU workforce. So it's hello to Gowen Davis. Morning, Nigel. And Ian Robinson is a partner in Fragman's legal office in London, where the team helps businesses make better use of the immigration system. Ian was formerly at the Home Office. Hello. Hi, Nigel. So, Ian, on the 1st of January 2021, this phony war will finally be over. The UK will be out of the transition period. Can you just explain, with or without a Brexit deal, with or without food shortages and gridlock at the Channel ports, just remind us what immigration rules will be different from day one? And indeed, what non-EU overseas people can come into the workforce and how? So from day one, we will be in a situation on the 1st of January 2021 where the UK ends its involvement in free movement. What that means in practice is that essentially there will be three groups of migrant workers in the UK. Europeans who were here before the end of the year who can stay, they can make an application on the EU settlement scheme. It's really straightforward and they should be encouraged to. Uh, There could be serious consequences if they don't. uh, And that will mean that they can work unencumbered. You will then have Europeans who enter the UK and non-Europeans who enter the UK after the 1st of January 2021. And for that group, they will be able to come and work so long as they are in a skilled job, they speak English and they will be sponsored by an employer over here. There will also be minimum salary requirements to meet. And then you also have a third group, non-Europeans, who were here before the end of the year. And for that group, all of a sudden, whereas right now they may be tied to a temporary visa, they will be able to move into a a permanent category. So you need to be thinking slightly differently about your existing employees uh, from outside of the EU. So going, let's just row back uh, a little bit, building on what we've just heard there. Remind us what sensible organisations have been doing or should have been doing in the run up to all this. I mean, are there still some people in limbo or liable to be thrown out? Well, one of the reassuring aspects to date is the success rate of the EU settlement scheme, which which Ian has referred to. We know that 3.6 million EU citizens have, have registered for that scheme which implies an extremely um, high uh, success rate. And, and I'm sure that's due in no small part 
to employ efforts to raise awareness among their workforces of of the need to and the requirement for for EU citizens to, to do that. And it's important to to remember that the deadline for applications is the 30th of June 2021. So for those outstanding employers who haven't um, raised awareness and perhaps have some concerns over one or two members of staff, they still have eight months to do so. And um, so until then, EU citizens have the same rights and conditions and enjoy the same rights and conditions they currently do and will do so until the middle of next year. Actually, employees, employees who aren't sure how to prepare their employees, it's not too difficult. Begin by reassuring people that they can stay. Go on to educate them about making an application and making the applications is really straightforward. And then direct them to apply before that deadline. Plan your comms around known milestones. Get something out quickly and as soon as you can. Think about sending something out before Christmas when free movement is due to end and there'll be lots of communications from the government. And then again, in the lead up to the end of June 2021, remind people that if they haven't applied, they really need to. And that if they don't, it could make it harder for them to find a job or rent a flat among among other more serious consequences. Yeah, I can see that's really important advice there. So let's move over to Mourinho Fernandez-Reno. The big change here is a move to a points-based immigration system. These are used in one form or another in various countries. Can you just sort of just explain the landscape, remind us how this works and how it will change things? So actually, even though we call it or the government call it, calls this a new system, a points-based system, it's actually not a points-based system as such, because usually points-based systems are not employer-led. That's, that is, the worker doesn't need to be sponsored by an employer in order to come to a country. It's just that he has like certain characteristics that the country deems attractive. So this uh, migrant is accepted. So that's typically how points-based systems work. In this case, the actual the, the UK system is a typical employer-led system. You need to be a sponsor for a job in order to come to the UK. You cannot come with an offer for a middle skill or a high skill job. So in this case, it continues to be the same as the previous system. The main differences, as uh, Ian has said, is that it changes completely the rules for, for EU migrants because they will be now subject to immigration controls. They will need to come to the UK with an offer, as uh, non-EU migrants did before. The main difference to the previous system is that now non-EU migrants, so those from outside the, the European Union, they will be able to come uh, more easily because they require for coming to the UK uh, have been, let's say, lower down. In this case, no, they no longer need uh, to be sponsored for a graduate level job. So some middle skilled jobs, they, you are able to come on a work visa to the UK. And also the salary requirements have been lower compared to the past year. So before it used to be 30,000, now it's 25,600. So probably what we will see, although it's very difficult to do forecasts in terms of immigration flows, is that there will be an increase in non-EU immigration and decrease in EU migration. Gowen Davis, do you have a view on that? How is this going to change the mix in the workforce during 2021 and going forward? Overlaying it, of course, is COVID, with so many employers at the moment just unsure about their labour needs. 
Yeah, well, it's very difficult to, to foresee the future because of the variables thrown up by, by the pandemic. But one thing we do know is that demand is likely to be a lot lower than it already would have otherwise been due to the pandemic because of the limited bandwidth that employers have. have. Management time, depressed demand for, for workers. We've uh, seen vacancies fall to a record low in recent months. And while that has recovered, it's still nowhere near pre-pandemic levels. And we've also got this issue of you know the job retention scheme and job support scheme. So there's a fight to save jobs rather than to recruit new workers. So the pressures on the new system in January are far less than they would have been if we if you'd asked me that question this time last year. But looking ahead, I think it's still inevitable that we will see a lower migration due to the restrictions. And that's because of the cost and administrative burden that is involved in recruiting overseas workers. And what we'll see is a shift in the composition of, of migrants towards more highly skilled professionals and, and to a lesser extent, medium skilled professionals and away from low skilled workers be simply because there is no route for low-skilled workers apart from the prospect of a youth mobility scheme, you know, the outcome of which is still yet to be decided because it's part of the Brexit negotiations as we speak. In Robinson, in the light of all that, I mean, a new immigration rule book, OK, a bit of a breathing space now because of uh, the pandemic and so on. But I mean, this is maybe great for lawyers, uh, legal companies like yours. Huge amount of paperwork. What is your sense of how prepared, how aware people, managers, employers are about all this and how it has to be dealt with and, uh, and basically how you can use the immigration system to make your workforce as good as it could be. When we when we speak to clients, they more often than not, our clients are prepared. But of course, our clients spend a lot of time thinking about immigration. When we've surveyed other employers, only about 20% of them feel like they are ready. And the, the IT sector in particular feels more prepared than most hospitality too but many many employers just aren't ready there is so much for them to get through but it it is possible in the time that we have the first step is to workforce plan Uh, the biggest decision is do you need uh, to recruit europeans and non-europeans in future they also need to be budget planning uk immigration is so so expensive if we were to sponsor a single person for three years that would be about five and a half thousand pounds in government fees alone if they were married with three children coming for five years that would be twenty seven thousand pounds in government fees big big cost to touch that you need to be ready for and then it's about making sure that your recruiters uh, and your line managers and others in the business understand what's coming the extra friction the extra cost and and to some extent extra delay although the new system will be a lot quicker than the current non-european immigration system and then taking decisions such as will you allow if you're already sponsoring migrants your temporary assignees with ict visas an intra-company transfer visa a visa that allows a person from an overseas entity to transfer to the uk right now they are capped at five years but they will be able to move into a new visa category and stay permanently is that something that you want to encourage and allow do you want to use the intra-company transfer category at all in future because whereas now we have about thirty thousand coming in to the country every year because it's quicker than tier two general and, and easier for various good reasons it will be just as quick and just as possible to use the skilled worker visa and keep people permanently Finally, think about your right to work. For the first six months of next year, you will just need to see that a person is European. But are you also going to check that they have the right to work? Because if not, 
a year, three years, 10 years from now, it may turn out that they don't. And all of a sudden, they realise, they learn that they're here illegally and, and can't get a new job, can't uh, rent a flat, can't access healthcare, the sorts of issues that we saw with Windrush. That's a relevant issue and one of the main challenges of the EU settlement scheme. I mean, the EU settlement scheme has been highly successful in the sense that there, there has been uh, like 3.7 million applications there are always certain groups of people that are not going to apply, and this could be for several reasons. Some people are more likely to miss the deadlines, and others experience like particular vulnerabilities, personal or social vulnerabilities that make them less likely to apply or to be aware of the scheme. So obviously, we, we might have this problem in the future, because in theory, all, all the EU migrants that are currently living in the UK that do not apply, they will become irregular migrants after June uh, 2021. So they won't have the right to work or to rent or to access the NHS. So at the end, even if the program is very successful, so imagine like 99 or 95% of people register in the EU settlement scheme, if only 5% do not register, this could mean thousands of people not register. And what is going to happen with these uh, people? In theory, the government, what the Home Office at the moment say that people who miss the deadline will be able to apply if they have reason or good reasons for not applying. But we still don't know what that means and how lenient they are going to be in accepting late applications. So that's important, obviously, for all employers to know that all their e-workers at the moment, they need to apply to the scheme in order if they want to continue working. So Gerwin Davies, how lenient do you think they'll be? Or I suspect you're going to say, just don't test them out, get it sorted now. Well, uh, certainly the discussions that we've had with, with Home Office officials suggests a real a ch- a mindset change and that um, a lot of leniency will be applied to cases. A lot of resources have been put in uh, in terms of you know the, the, the helplines that um, the Home Office have, have put in to help people with, with some of these challenges. So uh, I think that it's fair to say that the Home Office have learned the lessons from the past and um, hopefully that will lead to you know a much brighter future. And going while we're with you, just give us a bit more of a sense. We've already touched on this, but the difference is because we've been talking about labour from around the world as if it's kind of homogenous, but clearly we're talking about skilled, unskilled, semi-skilled jobs, the EU, uh, the uh, rest of the world, if you like. I mean, we've obviously had some experience of massive change with uh, farm workers coming in from the EU, shortages of those. Give us a bit of a sense across different business sectors and skills, how things are going to shape out. Well, again, the, the, the pandemic is is leading some some big structural changes in the labour market. So we're seeing permanent job losses in many of those low skill sectors, such as hospitality and retail. And there's a big question mark over whether they return at all. So again, compared with 12 months ago, I think we're at, we're at a very different point in terms of trying to predict what the future changes will be. Nonetheless, it is inevitable that there will be labour shortages at the low-skilled end simply because there is no route for low-skilled employment. At the same time, I think what we might see, while the government have been relatively generous, I think, in terms of the salary and skill thresholds, we might see more employers decide that the the administrative burden and the costs associated with the new system will mean that perhaps there's less gain 
to recruit for medium skilled occupations. Um, so, so, you know, areas such as lower management, which have, they have been recruiting EU workers in, in particular for. And I think what we might see is perhaps a greater emphasis on, on high skilled work and actually see more immigration because of those structural changes. We're seeing a lot more digital roles be created, so digital marketing, data analysts, and those are areas that we've got big skill shortages for. We're seeing big growth in areas such as green technologies, where uh, we've already got skill shortages despite you know the ample labor supply we have and of course that adds to the existing list of skill shortages which are in the you know traditional areas such as engineering accountancy and, and, and all the highly skilled roles i should add in terms of the regional impacts uh, it also looks set to have a particularly negative impact on, on london uh, where we know that you know, there's a high concentration of migrants across all sectors but of course because of that low skilled impact uh, the impact will be most keenly felt among those low wage sectors it's almost marina as if the kind of hollowing out of our cities that we've seen because of the pandemic that's kind of almost being followed by a sort of secondary effect in employment the main challenge we have to measure the effects of the change in migration policy is that we have the COVID crisis at the same time, which is a huge economic crisis, and it's going to accelerate many of the changes in the economy and the labor market that were already happening. Certain jobs in the hospitality sector, also in retail jobs, we don't know if these jobs are going to come back because people are increasingly, for example, buying online, and this process might have accelerated because of the pandemic. So how these things are going to evolve in the coming months, it's a bit uncertain, but it's probably the certain jobs that have been very hard hit uh, by the COVID. Probably we, don't, we won't see, I think, uh, jobs in this sector coming coming back again, at least in the next year. Now, one thing we can be certain of, uh, Ian, is that millions more of us are working from home. And uh, if countless millions of us continue to do that, there's, there's absolutely no sense that that won't be the case in 2021. It's almost as if events themselves kind of weakening or overriding Brexit itself, because, I mean... <sighs> In theory, what people are saying is, well, what's to stop me just sending existing or hiring new EU workers in their homes and they work for us from there? I guess you're going to say there are quite a lot of issues, but on the face of it, it does seem like a bit of a loophole. You know, what's the point of having Brexit? We can just all work wherever we are. Well, interestingly, when we've surveyed employers, about 40% of them expect to do less business um, in the UK as a consequence of this. Uh, and one of the solutions is the work can be done remotely from within Europe. We are also seeing a trend in governments towards nomadic visas. So Estonia has a digital nomad visa where people can go and work there for a year, have a lovely time of life but work remotely for a job in the UK, for instance. Uh, Barbados are doing something similar, which um, which sounds very appealing this morning. Um, <laughs> I've, I've been to Estonia. I can tell you it's extremely cold in the winter. I've not been to Barbados. I'm very happy to go on a fact-finding trip for you, if you want. But, um, this is all just new thinking, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I do think that you will see it more. We are spending a lot more time than ever before talking about commuters and people who work in the UK just during the week and need to work in Europe. We're having a lot more conversations about immigration in Europe, whether it's uh, some of the trickier countries like Spain and Italy or the more welcoming countries such as Germany or Netherlands. And that's as a consequence of, of several things, but 
in particular the the cost of the UK immigration system and the fact that it gives pause for thought before you bring people over here. If we're going to keep the same EU workforce but just send them home, I mean, that sounds like a neat solution. I guess, uh, Ian, there are going to be complexities and issues with regard to where they're domiciled, who they pay tax and uh, various other dues to. Yeah, that's right. And actually, we're seeing this already as a consequence of COVID. People went home um, to spend time with their families when the pandemic first took hold, and they haven't been able to return for logistical or personal reasons. And then employers are already facing difficulties with right to work. Do you, do you have permission to work in the country that you happen to be visiting with tax, with payroll? And just there is an extra level of complexity to remote working where it's overseas that employers need to take very, very seriously. I, I suspect, though, that the question will come up more often with, for instance, overseas employees who want to go back for Christmas and then spend the month of uh, December working in Argentina, South Africa or wherever they may be. It's going to come up much more often over the next few months and years. I mean, working remotely can be a uh can jeopardize, let's say, the eligibility for permanent residence for EU workers. So imagine that you are now an EU worker and you got the pre-settled status, which is the less secure status that you get when you apply to the EU settlement scheme and you have been living here for less than five years. So if after uh, December 2020, you leave to, for, to your country of origin, because you might think that here the pandemic is getting worse and you just do your work remotely from there. If your absence is longer than six months, then you might not be able to apply for a settled status afterwards. So at the end, you need to start the process altogether. Let's say you lose your residency rights because the pre-settled status cannot be renewed. So I think probably workers, probably Ian, the legal, uh, let's say, details, Ian is more aware of this. But I think, uh, I don't know if all employers or all you workers that have this less secure status are aware of the, the, let's say, the conditions in order to get permanent residence in the future. Go and do you think people managers are across that? Clearly, it's an issue, as we've heard, for the workers themselves. But uh, employers could unwittingly damage uh, somebody's employment uh, aspirations. To be honest, many won't be aware of, of, of those of finer nuances. But what I would say is from a, from a labour market perspective is that you know, we've done research recently which shows that where possible, remote working can be successful. The recent homeworking experiment has not led to an adverse impact on productivity. And one of the reasons for that is that the communication challenges which this would ordinarily have raised in years gone by have largely been overcome because of you know the new technologies so people are able to hold uh, weekly team meetings via zoom or microsoft teams and, and as a result we've not seen the negative impact that one would have associated with this kind of pandemic it does though also raise uh, ian a slightly broader issue about the moral responsibility on employers if you like if they're in a situation certainly of having to sponsor people it does kind of tie them to that worker in some ways we've also just heard from Marinia there that um, if employers don't fully understand the implications of say a bit of homeworking or establishing a, an early relationship and then finding they can't bring the people back do you think that employers are going to have to kind of be more concerned about those uh, sort of moral questions when they're trying to bring people in? To begin with, employers are going to need to be much more concerned about compliance questions. Sponsoring an overseas worker 
is reasonably straightforward once you have a license, but afterwards, any change in circumstances needs to re be reported to the Home Office. You need to make sure that a person's visa doesn't expire. You have a duty of care to your employees to ensure that they understand their entitlement to permanent residence and so on, and to ensure that they aren't lost, uh, to Marina's uh, point earlier. So employers will find that they need to spend a lot more time thinking about this for their sponsored workers. If they're going to be recruiting Europeans from outside of the UK next year, or indeed non-Europeans, they will need a sponsor license. And I can't stress how important that is. There's also the question of, and I, I'm asked this an awful lot, interestingly, by the pharma sector, do we need to make sure that our employees have actually applied for settled status or pre-settled status under the withdrawal agreement? And the answer in, in pure legal terms is no, you don't. It certainly as it stands, there is no obligation to check that an employee is applied. In my opinion, there is a duty of care owed by employers to their employees, oftentimes, simply because if a person doesn't apply, their life could be turned upside down. And the more you can do to educate them, to direct them and make sure that they know what is needed, the better. If you don't, if you don't know who your Europeans are, that will make it harder. But the more information you can make available, the better. CIPD will have good information. The Home Office has a good employer toolkit. Other providers too. Just try and help people would be my view. Mourinho, from your work at the Migration Observatory, I just wonder whether experience other countries have had when they've changed their immigration systems, other flows around the world. Do they give the UK any clue as to what the future might hold? I'm thinking now, for example, uh, a major immigration program uh, that was implemented in Spain, in, in my country for origin, about 15 years ago, when there was a regularization program for around almost a million uh, irregular migrants. So they have uh, the opportunity to register and be, let's say, legal in the system. So it was, in a sense, highly successful because obviously it was in the interest of migrants uh, to register. But even though not all of them registered, not all of those who were eligible registered. So the, it's not the irregular let's say, migration problem was not completely solved by this program, but it certainly helped. I think that in this case, this is certainly a major change. And the fact that this major policy change is occurring in a moment where there is also a major economic crisis unfolding, it's problematic. In terms of experience of such an overhaul of an immigration system, I tend to think of a few years ago in Australia where they reviewed their 457 programme, which was their work permit programme, huge amount of disruption. When President Trump brought in the travel ban back in 2016, huge amount of disruption. Reform in China, big disruption. When this is happening, the key components to your response are going to be good data, know who your people are, know what they're doing, what they're paid and what it would cost you to bring them in in future. Good communications to the business so that they understand what is happening, where the changes are, but also to, so that you can manage expectations. And then finally, advocacy. Make sure that government understands the issues that you are facing and then they're more likely to be resolved. How you do that if you're a big company is very different to if you're a small company. But actually, this is where nobody gets into the building with the Home Office as quickly as CIPD can, given the relationship. And the, the more, uh, if this isn't the hostage to fortune going, but the more you can feed in to your local representatives, the better, I would say. One quick point on the point of about influence in the Home Office. Um, you'll see in various government reports that you know, the CIPD has been a vocal presence and, and, and a key influence on, on the future direction of government policy. 
and we will be evaluating its impact next year as, as part of our role and look to identify some changes that the government could make. Uh, so, for instance, one of them that we think they could be and should be looking at is the idea of umbrella uh, sponsorship organisations. So that would be an overarching body, like a membership body that could free employers of some of the compliance pressures, not least because one of the things they tell us is that they really fear making a mistake. So they can have that level of reassurance that another organisation like the CIPD or whoever um, CPI can offer. But to add to, to Ian's uh, wise, wise words on what organisations can do, the only thing I would add is the greater need to focus on internal development and look at the wider range of options other than just immigration. You know, the, the debate around immigration has been too narrowly focused on recruitment difficulties and skill shortages. And we haven't looked at the panorama of options that include automation, but especially internal development. You know, while we've seen immigration levels increase over the recent years, we've seen uh, public funding in skills fall. We've seen employer uh, funding for skills fall. And with the, the uh, more public funding, as we've seen, the government are announced a skills guarantee to help people embrace lifelong learning. It's also employers' responsibility to help the retention with the retention issues that have undoubtedly contributed to some of the recruitment difficulties through things like apprenticeships, which have been falling alarmingly over the last couple of years. And again, if I was in Whitehall, one of my asks to government would be the need to reform the apprenticeship levy and turn it into a training levy so that organisations have more flexibility to train the workforce and invest more in skills. Well, yes, I mean, that's, but this is more a change that will occur in the medium long term. At the end, this, there needs to be probably a coordination between employers and, and the policy initiatives of the government in order to upskill the labor force and to, let's say, automate certain processes and rely less on, let's say, labor for certain uh, processes. But it's true also that for certain sectors, I'm thinking now of the social care sector, it's difficult sometimes. The, these sectors are heavily reliant on migrant labor, especially cheap migrant labor, because the salaries are, are very low. And it's likely to be like that in the short term. I mean, some sectors are likely to continue relying on migrant, low-paid migrant labor in the short term. So I don't see how there can be dramatic changes in the short term. And a final thought, maybe a bit of advice from you, Ian. Well, I really, I, I suppose this really just emphasizes why it's so important to work for us plan. So there will be a temptation, certainly at the moment, to think tactically, headcount plan, fill the vacancies that need filling as you go along. If you can use this time to reflect on your workforce and think about where you can build um, by bringing in younger people who are available in the labour market, where you need to borrow. And then immigration essentially becomes an issue when you need to buy in skills, really, in most instances. Workforce plan, look at cost, look at need and try and get the balance there so that you have diversity, but also making the most of the people who are available to you now. Well, that's it. If you heard our last podcast, we considered drug and alcohol abuse, touching, among other things, on the controversial idea of testing employees. Afterwards, Jane Brownlee of the Alcohol and Drug Service drew attention to some useful case studies and other info they have online. I was particularly struck by their urging to approach any testing from a health and safety perspective rather than the risk to an individual. Uh, she says you can too easily get caught up in arguments about the rights and wrongs of the legal status of one substance against another. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you never miss an episode. But that's our lot this time. Let me thank our excellent guests on this topic with all they had to say as we count down to the real Brexit. That's Marinya fernandez Reno, to Ian Robinson and Gerwin Davis. From me, Nigel Cassidy, and all of us at the CIPD. Until next time, it's goodbye. <laughs>